Wild Precious Life is brought to you by Story Studio Chicago, a writing center located in Chicago and online, which helps writers hone their craft, express their creativity, and tell their stories. With classes covering a wide variety of topics, genres, and levels, there is truly something for everyone at Story Studio. Learn more at storystudiochicago.org. And we're brought to you by Content Bookstore. Located in the heart of historic Northfield, Minnesota, the content shop is bright, warm, and welcoming to readers of all ages, interests, and walks of life. Drop by or shop online at contentbookstore.com. So I'm thinking today about other mothers. We all have them, but we usually call them by other names. Mentors, colleagues, grandmas, friends. I'm thinking about the women in our lives who took care of us when our own mothers couldn't or didn't. Maybe you lost your mom at a young age. Maybe you never knew her at all. But chances are you have someone who stepped in at some point and played that nurturing role. For a long time, my dad was my mom. He was the one I talked to about boyfriends or job stress or later my kids. At my first job out of college, I had a boss mom, which is funny since Gail and I are practically the same age, but she helped me with everything from setting professional boundaries to figuring out where to change the oil in my car. I sought her out on my down days, big and small, she helped me find my way. When I was a young parent, Ms. Barbara at my daughter's preschool was my teacher mom. I'd bounce developmental milestones off of her. My daughter would say, stay forever, mom, when I went to drop her off. And I'd ask, is this normal? Ms. Barbara helped me get to the point where I felt safe leaving my kids in someone else's care. She nurtured my children and me. And I've had friend mothers. My friend Jen, who you guys met earlier this year, once shared a stolen family recipe with me for cinnamon coffee cake. And it's delicious. My other friend Michal taught me unsuccessfully how not to fear breastfeeding in public. Side note, I maintain that when you're taught for decades to harness and hide the twins, you can't just overnight be comfortable flaunting them for the world to see in a restaurant. But... I digress. (laughs) I'm blessed to have had many other mothers. I've had auntie mothers and boss mothers and sister and brother mothers. I've had teacher mothers and student mothers and even a former next door neighbor mother. And I was thinking about all of them during my conversation with writer Beth Wynn today. At the end of the Vietnam War, when Beth was only eight months old, she and her father sister, grandmother, and uncles fled Saigon for America. But Beth's mother stayed behind. In her most recent book, a memoir, Beth investigates the absences and uncertainties of growing up without knowing her biological mother. And she also highlights the women who stepped in along the way to try to fill that void. Beth Wynn is the author of four books, including Stealing Buddha's Dinner and Pioneer Girl. Her awards and honors include an American Book Award, a Breadloaf Fellowship, and Best Book of the Year honors from the Chicago Tribune and Library Journal. 
Beth's work has also appeared in numerous anthologies and publications, including The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Best American Essays, and more. She received an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan and is currently a professor in creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her latest book, Owner of a Lonely Heart, is out now. Beth Wynn, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Hi, thanks for having me here. Hey, and congratulations on your new memoir. Thank you. When our team was first considering who to invite on the show this month, we stumbled across some of the early blurbs for your book. Kais Lehman wrote, quote, Beth Wynn has created a new way to ache. Alexander Chi said, quote, it's the story of a fear you cannot name because you are one of the authors, a secret you hid even from yourself, the sort of cure you make from a poison. And Lacey Johnson wrote that your book is quite possibly the most beautiful memoir she's ever read. This was such terrific and well-deserved praise from some of the absolute pillars of the literary community. How does it feel to have this story out there in the world now? Well, first of all, those are incredibly generous, kind writers, <laughs> apparently prone to exaggeration, but they are the very <laughs> kind people whose work I so admire. So I'm, I'm sort of overwhelmed by their, their, you know, nice words about my work. Well, for folks who have not read it, it's called Owner of a Lonely Heart. We'll get to that title and the Yes Band later. Um but let's let's talk a little bit about the story of you. So when you were a baby, eight months old, in fact, when the Vietnam War was crashing to an end, your family evacuated Saigon, but somehow your mother was left or stayed behind. I know you've spent a book and in some ways kind of a lifetime putting together the pieces of this story, but to the best of your understanding... What happened that you guys left and she stayed? That is a central mystery of my life. And I kind of only recently understood that to be so. I had grown up always knowing that my sister and I had a mother who was in Vietnam and nobody ever talked about her and we had no idea who she was or we knew nothing about her. But we had a grandmother living with us. We had a stepmother. We were not lacking maternal figures. And the silence around our mother just became something that was part of life. And it was only later when I became a writer that I started to think about how that story, the missing aspects of you know my life, I mean, that was just something I couldn't avoid. In writing, one has such a, such a strange relationship with figuring out what you want to write and what you want to avoid. And so often it's the thing we want to avoid, of course, that we should be writing toward. And so that's what I needed to explore in this book, the, the whereabouts of my mother, what her life was like, and what my relationship with her has looked like over these years that I have sort of known her. Yeah, with an emphasis on... On sort of, right? Because I think in the blurb, in the blurb that came with your book, it talked about um in a matter of in decades, in the decades that you've that you've known your mom since since then, you've perhaps spent twenty-four hours together. Not a long time at all. Yes. Yeah, so when I met my mother, I was nineteen years old. 
So even though I had learned about her existence when I was a child, I didn't see her, I didn't meet her, I never talked to her until I was 19. And then I have seen her so seldom in the years since that when I was writing this book, I was really struggling with the narrative of it, struggling to figure out why I was writing it, what is the point of doing anything. And I realized during that process that I had spent less than 24 hours with her total in my you know, known, remembered life. And it was really startling. And then I realized I needed to go into the writing and figure out those hours. Yeah. I mean, let's go back for folks who haven't read it. So you leave Vietnam, you evacuate there, you end up through, you know, a series of camps and places and you come to America and your mother does not come because your parents were not at that point together anymore. And in in wartime, who knows where anybody is? So there's all kinds of explanations for that. But then she, too, ends up here in America. And your dad says, you guys can send pictures, you can send your mother a card. But it's probably going to make sense to wait until later to meet her, which is your kid. You accept that that answer. I feel like if this was a movie, right, the next scene would be like you guys getting on a bus or a plane. We would see you like running to your mother, the long lost woman in the strange land. Uh, But this is real life. And it wasn't like you say, it wasn't nearly that dramatic. I guess as a reader or maybe as a listener, people might want to know, like, why did it take nearly a decade for you to want to meet your mother? That is a question that I've thought about a lot (laughs) over the years. When my family left Vietnam as refugees, we, you know, it was the night before the fall of Saigon, and we didn't know where we were going to end up. I was a baby, and we ended up uh, after being in three refugee camps, ended up being resettled in Michigan. I actually grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so when we, when my sister and I found out that she, you know, had come to the United States on her own as a refugee, we had, we thought, you know, a chance to meet her. But it was such a huge subject, you know, in our family that my dad and stepmom basically were like, you know, this is too, this is too much. Let's wait until you're a little bit older. Let's wait until like we can all handle this a little bit more. Uh, in hindsight, I wonder if it was a way of protecting us, a way to to keep out the worries, anxieties, traumas of post-war life. And and I actually understand that in a way because now that I am a mother, also I know that sometimes we make decisions based on this idea of protection and preservation, and we're not always right. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And there are these beautiful echoes of motherhood in your book. You say of your own children that you you know them by heart. You know that 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 their their bodies, like you have them memorized. And in almost the same breath, you admit to not knowing your own mother at all. You write, quote, to be a mother is to form a new understanding of time. It's to form a new relationship with all that you know about your body and its capacities. It's not a do-over of your own childhood, but close enough. I love the way that you put this. It's not a do-over, but it's close. You know, how has your own motherhood felt close to a do-over of this childhood that you're writing about? For me, one of the most interesting things about 
being a mother and raising children in general is thinking all the time about how I was raised and how I grew up. I think it's it's impossible not to think about that when you are <laughs> with small children. There's a strange comparison. You you know, there's this desire to be better. You're like, okay, this is what my parents did. That's so that's exactly what I'm not going to do. <laughs> that kind of thing. But also the sense of realizing, oh yeah, this is what it was like. Remember what it was like, you know, being five, being seven, being ten, and learning new words and realizing how big the world is and all the questions, that sense of wonder and the delicate sense of, of you know, this, of order is, I don't know, it was very moving to me. I think about it a lot. And I was thinking about it a lot when I was writing the book too, because I was realizing that every time I looked at my children and was thinking about how much I knew them, I would then have to take it a step farther and realize how much I didn't know, you know, about my own mother and what was she thinking during those years and all those questions I had about my mother that I kind of had pushed to the back of my mind and didn't want to think about, I had to think about when I had my own children. Yeah. And it's not like you get answers. Uh, you and I met briefly in Philadelphia last year. There's no reason you should remember this, but I, I remember because you talked about the intersection of fiction and memoir. So like the gray area. And you, you're often interrogating like whether a memory happened like you thought. This first we meeting with your mother happens when you're 19 and you write, quote, here is where I confess that I have forgotten what happened when I met my mother. And you go on to describe like a couple different versions of how that scene happened. Was there a revolving door or not? What were you wearing? That your, your body remembers perhaps the emotions of that day, the feeling of that day, but your mind sometimes tells a different story. I think we have this idea that in nonfiction, everything is true. And in fiction, everything is made up. But there's a lot of terrain in between, isn't there? I think the difference between fiction and nonfiction is very unclear. And for me, the joy of writing fiction is that living in that space of not knowing, of getting to be deliberately unclear about what is true and what is not true, that's, that's very freeing. But part of the joy of nonfiction is getting to be as direct as one wants to be. I, the, you know, the story of meeting my mother for the first time I needed to write that in nonfiction because it was not a super dramatic reunion. And I think the temptation is there in fiction to make it dramatic. Part of what I wanted to do in Owner of a Lonely Heart was to investigate the ways in which, you know, trouble and trauma and our relationships, all those things can be experienced in a way that is quiet rather than loud, that, you know, a lot of it is internalized and that the feeling of dysfunction and trauma is different from the outward expression of it. And so the, the messiness of a dramatic reunion is not what I experienced, but I did experience the messiness of it internally, you know, because I carried it with me forever. and. That, for me, that sense of perspective, um, what actually happened versus what I remembered, that is 
the terrific place of writing nonfiction, just trying to remember all the time and knowing that what we remember actually changes, that the past is not static because we keep changing as people. And so our perspective on the past keeps changing. That's so true. I wonder if you ever worried, I'm not sure that you address this head on in the book, but um, I don't I don't write or talk much about my own mom. I don't explain that very often. Our own relationship is complicated. It's only grown more complicated as I've gotten older. But she was never um, my best friend. She was never a person I confided in. She was never, you know, she was someone who certainly loved me the best that she could. And as she's still alive and I go to see her, I, um, I'm i kind of a caretaker. I get her mail and I get her prescriptions and I shuttle her to the doctor and I pick up things on the floor. But our relationship is quite transactional. I am a maid. I'm a chauffeur, um, but not a confident. And I was always jealous, so very jealous of those other mothers. You you write a little bit about Celia in, in the book, of, um, a name of, of, a, of a boyfriend, an old boyfriend's mom, but it could be anyone's mom, really. Just those, those confidant moms, those moms who asked you how you were, and then you wanted to tell them because you trusted them with their sto- your story. I didn't grow up with that. Um, and, and it sounds like you did not, in your immediate experience, grow up with that either. I'm, I'm mentioning all this um, because I sometimes worry that it would change the way I was as a mom, that I wouldn't be able to do it, you know? Um, but if anything, I feel like for me it's been like, because I'm so hyper-aware of not having been asked or not having had that kind of relationship with my mother that I, that maybe I listened to my children too much. <laughs> I don't know. How, were you ever worried that your relationship with this person, your Boston mother, um, would somehow affect your own ability to be a mom? Yes. So my mother lives in Boston and I I call her Boston mother <laughs> a lot because I don't know. It's like I don't know what else to call her. You know, I don't. She's not. I, I don't call her mom. I call my stepmom mom. And because my relationship with you know mothers is complicated, I definitely worried about that when I was when I was having kids. You know, like, am I going to know how to do this? And um, am I going to repeat silences that you know happened when I was growing up? And so. I think I tend to overcompensate, maybe. <laughs> so I hear what you're saying. That I maybe talk to my kids. Sometimes I'm like, do I talk to them too much? Am I, am I saying things like, do they need to hear this? Um, am I asking too many questions? Things like, like that. But I, I feel like I'm just going to err on the side of too much <laughs> talking rather than too little because I also was so, so envious of my friends. And I didn't have that many of them who had this, but friends who had mothers, parents who just ask them about their lives and that they would just have these conversations. And I had a boyfriend in high school whose mother was like that. And she was so important to me because it was a, it was the relationship I had always wanted with a grown up, and, you know, really helped kind of define what that parent child relationship could look like. Sure. I think another person who you write about who also helped you learn about unconditional love was your your grandmother, Noy, who I know has since passed away um, and is no longer with us. But would you 
Tell us a little bit about your grandmother, Noi, and what she taught you about what it meant to be a mother. Yeah, I was really, really fortunate to grow up with my grandmother, Noi, living, living with us the whole time. So she really raised me and my siblings, and she was just always there and was the calmest <laughs> and most stable person anyone could ever ask for. And I'm extremely lucky because I think without her, we would have had so much chaos. I mean, we had chaos, but she was steady. She never um, yelled at us. Do you know what I mean? She didn't, she didn't indulge us all the time either, but we just knew that she was a source and place of safety. And maybe that's a thing that kids really need is somebody they know who will be safe. And we didn't have deep conversations with her. You know, you know, we didn't say, I love you. We didn't hug. We just, my grandma and I would just hang out in her bedroom and watch the Golden Girls, <laughs> you know, and, and eat fruit and put together a jigsaw puzzle. And that was such a safe and wonderful experience for me. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greenie. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. talk about growing up with a different name, right? You grew up with the name Bic, that you grew up with a name that to other kids didn't necessarily sound, quote unquote, American, right? It wasn't a Sarah or an Anne kind of name. And so this distance between you and joining these communities, you felt was made bigger. And and, and I I think not just you felt, but like was made bigger by the name. Like every, every white teacher who ever met you butchered your name the first day of school. Every single time. And that comes at a cost, right? You talk about winning a spelling bee and not wanting your name to be read on the loudspeaker or be written on the the banner outside, this invisibility that at the same time that you're wanting to fit in, you're also just like wanting not to be seen at all with this name. And so later you actually ended up changing your name. That's a pretty recent change, correct? A couple of years ago, I, I wrote this essay that the New Yorker published about changing my name from a very Vietnamese name to Beth. I don't think I've ever gotten more emails or responses from anything combined than I have from that one piece. And there were too many, too many. I couldn't even read them all. Most of them that I read were really intimate and kind and people telling me the stories about their relationships with their own names, which is, you know, can be really fraught. But some of them were extremely mean (laughs) 
and angry because names stir up so much and they are tied to a, a sense of familial obligation, cultural obligation, you know, so much. And so, you know, growing up with a name that was extremely Vietnamese made me feel really visible, even while I also felt invisible. And I learned later on in college that that is actually really part of the Asian American experience is this strange relationship between visibility and invisibility and being perceived as the perpetual foreigner, which is that, you know, Asian people, no matter how long they've been in the United States or how many generations their families have been here are usually still seen as foreign, you know, no matter what. And that comes through in, in, you know, big and small ways in so many different interactions. And that definitely defined and was a huge part of how I grew up. I had to deal with that by not dealing with it. You know, it just, there was no one to talk to about it. There was no language back then for us to talk about it. I think that's something that back then we did not have the discourse. There was no discourse about it. So we just kept everything to ourselves. That's what it means to be Gen X. You know, <laughs> just internalized it all. Now, now I can figure it out in my writing and look back and I look back in wonder and shock as well <laughs> that that was how we all grew up. That's right, because you and I are about the same age, but we were we were taught not to talk about race, right? That was rude yeah. somehow. Don't talk about race because that's drawing attention <laughs> as yeah. though as though yes. you didn't know that you you were born in Vietnam, as though me saying it out loud would somehow be rude, rather than just a, a fact, a, a starting place. Yeah, we didn't talk about anything. What did we talk about? Hair Let's ties see. and uh, side ponytails. Side ponytails. Um, yeah. Parachute pants. Puffy stickers. Pu- yeah, the scratch and <laughs> sniff stickers as well. Yeah, we skated along the surface of a lot of things, and we have a shared language, but also um, some some real shared hurt. Um, a- another person with whom I feel like you shared language and hurt was was your sister An. Um, you write some beautiful things about. About that, you you quote, I, I am comfortable around my sister, can say things with my sister in a way that I've never been or will be with anyone else in the world. We share an intimacy of space that as the years go on seems almost sacred to me. I also have a sister and I love the way that you said that, the intimacy of space. Um, it doesn't mean that you're best friends. It doesn't mean that you're the same. But there's this shared history. My sister and I can slip into a shared language, uh, shared stories. We can, I can tell the story about the pulling the ear off the stuffed animal of the lamb or stealing bread. And I'm like, we we can have these conversations that no one else can have. And I feel like you you really also shared that with An. However, you also share the story of this this mother. Right, that, that was left in Vietnam. That that you're writing your story, which is simultaneously a good portion of it, is Ans. I wonder, did you have to take any special considerations vetting this memoir or editing it to make space for um, the story that exists um, in your sisterhood? Yeah, I gave the manuscript to my sister to see if it was okay, basically. You know, and one of the tricky parts about writing nonfiction about writing memoir is writing other people 
And that is not something that can be avoided. We write about relationships which involve other people. And a lot of that process for me is, is thinking about why, you know, and what, you know, my motives are, what my goals are, and how much do they really need to be involved? And, um, you know, what is mine to tell? Those kinds of questions. And those are difficult. It's not easy to answer all of those along the way. So I didn't, I don't want to make someone be a part of my story, but at the same time, they're there. They are part of the story, you know? So that was, that's a careful navigation, I think, in memoir. And so I was trying really hard to figure out how to do that. And the relationship I have with my sister is so important to me. She's also the only person in the world who shares the exact same story. You know, we both had the, this childhood experience of not knowing where our mother was. And then we learned, but then we didn't meet her until we were in college. And it's so strange. <laughs> and the way we think about the past and the way we live now, it just, there's no one else in the world who knows it, like my sister. And so the, the shorthand that we have is, is really important to me. And so when I gave that to her, it was, it was so meaningful to me because I wanted her approval in a way. I wanted to have a conversation with her about, you know, what our lives have meant, you know, for each other. Yeah. I thought there was something really beautiful in the kinship between the two of you, because it's not just that you waited years to meet your mother. It's that even since meeting your mother as adults, you have not had a flourishing relationship in the way that others might have pictured or the way that maybe you even yourselves pictured it. But you at least share with on this understanding of what you do have, which is we're going to be in town for a wedding. We're going to stop by and see our mother in Boston. She might be there. She might be at Foxwoods that day. Who can say? Um, I, I think in some ways on is is one of the only people who can understand the relationship, because even as an outsider reading this book, turning the pages with the story, it's hard for me even to understand. Really, she just wasn't there the day that you showed up. You haven't seen her in so long. Um, but are you guys, have you reached a kind of peace? And that might be the wrong word. Um, an understanding of what this relationship with your mother is and probably ever will be. So my relationship with my mother is that I have seen her so seldom in the years since I first met her when I was 19. And whenever I have seen her, it's been for such a small amount of time, an hour here, and then years later, you know, another hour. And I've always seen her where she lives in Boston. And usually because there's another reason, you know, I'm going to a wedding or I'm in Boston for a conference, that kind of thing. And it's very strange and it's hard to explain because when I say it out loud, it doesn't quite make sense because it doesn't fit what, you know, I think we want to think of as a good and, you know, normal, whatever that is, relationship with one's mother. But it is the one that I have for whatever reason. And trying to figure that out was part of this book. You know, I was writing it to figure that out when, when I was writing down those hours, those specific visits I've had with her over these years, I was trying to come to a sense of understanding. Maybe peace is too much to ask for, but I was trying to get to a place of understanding in terms of 
why our relationship is like this. And maybe it is okay. Like maybe this is what we have. Yeah, it's that last part. Early in the book, I think you read a phrase. It's like, we're not estranged. We're just separate. And and early yeah. in the book, I was like, how is that? Wait a minute. I remember like underlining and highlighting. We're not estranged, just separate. But as I moved my way through the pages and came to understand this, and again, thought about my own transactional relationship with a mother I knew many more years and hours than than you did, it, it is okay. And, and I think we know that in our bones and we know that in the relationship with our own children, but it's really hard to hold on to that okayness. And by okay, I just mean like, that's what it is. I can't change it if I wanted to. And it's okay if I don't even want to, but we have this swirl outside of us that says that the relationship is supposed to be different with your mother. And then I start to internalize, well, what's wrong with me that it's not? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I grew up watching all these sitcoms and shows, you know, where <laughs> mothers were depicted a certain way. And I think that is actually a huge cultural influence. But what you just said is so true in terms like we we couldn't change things necessarily, even if we wanted to. I mean, like I learned that just because I asked my mother a question, or just because I asked her that same question, even over and over, doesn't mean she's ever going to answer it. And, you know, she doesn't. <laughs> There are questions I've asked her, like, you know, how did you, my dad, meet? Like, how, can you tell me about what it was like when, when you gave birth to me? Questions like that, that she just is never going to answer or, or never answer to, like, any kind of point of satisfaction. And, like, this is actually the relationship we have now. And maybe it will change. I don't know. But what it is now is what it is. And that, you know, that is, that is okay. Yeah. Hey, can we talk a little bit about this title? So I am a child of the 80s, so um, I cannot read Owner of a Lonely Heart without hearing that 1980s Yes song in my mind. <laughs> Why not living on a prayer? Why not girls just want to have fun? Where did this title come from? Yeah, uh, I feel like I have to continually apologize because that song is kind of, it's kind of annoying. And once it gets into your mind, it kind of stays there. For a while, but that is part of the reason why it's titled because it was stuck in my mind, you know. Without no offense to living on a prayer, um, not a not a bad title, um, but that when I was a when I was a kid, that video was so disturbing, still is disturbing. But that song, I really hated that song, "Owner of a Lonely Heart," when I was a kid. And every time it came on, I would just feel like I would need to escape from it. But eventually, like a lot of songs, I heard it so many times that it kind of, you know, kind of wore me down. And I would just sort of think about it, what it really, the words of it. Owner of a lonely heart you know, is much better than owner of a broken heart. And I thought it was, you know, lovely and sad and just the way that I liked things to be. And so it just came into my mind one day when I was writing this manuscript, which took me, you know, about 10 years to write. That, that song, Owner of a Lonely Heart, stayed in my mind, um, stayed in, on radio stations. It stayed, you know, with us culturally for a reason. Well, I actually love it. I think it's great. And I do think that it... You like it, that song? It, no, the title of the book, I think it makes t such sense. Like, oh, oh, okay. I was like... I'm, well, I'm, I, <laughs> it's one of those songs you can't can't get out of your head. So do I like it? Do I hate it? But do I yeah. know it? You know, but I, I think that the difference between lonely and broken, you know, and that that a broken heart is not a lonely 
heart. Someone who's by themselves is not broken. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's a nuance there that really fits the fits the book. But I was definitely like, as soon as I saw the title, I'm like, owner of a lonely, <laughs> I <was>, couldn't unhear it. <laughs> um, well, we always close with some just like fun. Yes or no questions, this or that questions to help folks get a sense of the person behind the book. Um, so these first ones are multiple choice. You just pick one, okay? Okay. A little lightning round for you. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Dogs or cats? Cats. Let's see. The board game Payday or Hungry Hungry Hippos? <sighs> Payday because it's so depressing. It's so depressing. Uh, the, I, I still quote. This is another thing I could quote. With my sister, I could quote cards from Payday, like, you've done the best you could with what <laughs> what you had. Like, we, we still, there are insults from the Payday that are just like, you're losing your money. Oh, my goodness. we are right back there. There's like a middle-aged tax, <laughs> you know, middle-aged health club. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, facts of life or different strokes? Facts of life. <laughs> Peak skill. Peak <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Blair and Joe and Natalie and Tootie and Mrs. Garrett. You know what's funny? <laughs> I was like, do you remember that Mrs. Garrett opened a store called Edna's Edibles? Edna's Edibles. Before Edibles meant what it does now, <laughs> it meant what it did then. I think George Clooney is like, isn't George Clooney the oh, handyman? Yeah. yeah he. But that was after that store morphed into like a different kind of store. He was their handyman. Yeah. Excellent. And he was uh, in the Golden Girls for one episode. Oh, I'm going to need you to send me that. I'm going to have to look that up. I don't know if I've seen that one. Does Does Roz try to sleep with him? Um, well, you know, there's, a, there's, of course, flirtation going on. But he he plays a a police officer. I don't want to no, give it away. I'm going to watch it. You know, he's no great. spoilers. He's not great. He's not great in it. Yeah. The Sound of Music or The Wizard of Oz? Oh, I hate The Wizard of Oz. Sound of Music. Remember when it was only on once a year? God, yes. We had... And if you missed it, you no, missed it. We, my parents made us watch it. That's one of the reasons why I hate it so much. It was like watching a nightmare. Well, I remember just like the Sound of Music and the Wizard of Oz were, were only on once a year. And inevitably, we were driving home from somewhere. So we would start the movie and it's like black and white tornadoes. And then it'd be time to leave. And then you'd get home and it's like flying monkeys and you've missed everything in between. And I'm like, well, you can see it next year. My parents, my kids have no understanding of what it would mean to watch a movie next year. <laughs> That's true. Like, <laughs> I love we'll that. Watch it next year. Yeah, wait, just wait a whole uh, year. Maybe, if, <laughs> you know, if we're here. Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine or The Grapes of Wrath? Oh, boy, that's a tough call. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Love Medicine. I gotcha. Um, Elizabeth Bishop's One Art or Chi Chi's Restaurant? <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> that is really a strange choice, but I'm not, I don't know if Chi-Chi still exists, but you know, because the art of losing isn't hard to master, I'm going to go with Elizabeth Bishop. <laughs> the art of losing isn't hard to master. We much have had, must have had the exact same textbook in our college English class because I was, I was obsessed with that poem too. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird only because of my children. Yeah, that's the worst. Kids get up early. Are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? Band-Aids, definitely. If you could time travel, would you rather go back in time or forward? Forward. And this is a fill in the blank. If I wasn't working as a writer slash writing teacher slash mom and I had maybe a little bit of magic, I would like to be a... Wait, does this have to involve magic? 
No, not like only a little bit of magic. Like, like you can't have a unicorn. That's too much magic. But just like, oh, that's too bad. You know, I mean, maybe you could. It doesn't say. If you'd like to be a unicorn trainer, I suppose we would allow it. But if you weren't working <laughs> as a writer, what would you like to be? I'd probably probably be doing something with food. I do a lot of baking and cooking, so I would probably do that thing where I turn like a hobby or passion into my work. And then we grow to hate it. Yeah, and then I'd complain about it. <laughs> would it be called Beth's Edibles? Oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> Beth's. And that sounds so wrong. That is so it wrong. Does. What's something you like to bake? Like, what are you? What are you known for? What do you like to bake that that people like to eat? I like to make uh, sort of elaborate layer cakes. You know, galettes. Ooh. You know, very decorative stuff. Every year, I make a different gingerbread house. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do. I do all the construction myself. Do you actually make the? You know, bake the gingerbread. Do you? Oh, I certainly do, like with, with my own design. You're supposed to get that at the bar, the box at Target. Well, yeah, you could. Or <laughs> you could spend a lot of time creating your own and then make a bunch of engineering mistakes because you have no training. Wow. <laughs> I mean, who is is any one of us trained enough in gingerbreading? I don't, I mean, again, it, as children of the 80s, I feel like that was not in our curriculum. It wasn't. It's been uh, difficult. <laughs> um, what's a favorite book? Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, I... I Probably the biggest influence on my work is The Woman War by Maxine Hunkingston. Um, a favorite television show or movie or both? Okay, so I am still obsessed with The Golden Girls. <laughs> I've also watched and rewatched Mad Men probably more than any other show. Interesting. Back to Golden Girls for a second. Which one do you most align with you know are you a Sophia are you a Rose are you, like who are you okay so my theory is that everybody in life goes through phases of these different characters you know like you have a Sophia phase you have a Dorothy phase you know I I might be in a Blanche phase right now I might be I called her Roz earlier what the heck her name is Blanche see I do stuff like this and then we can't fix it I just look like an idiot I know her name's Blanche you said yes. Roz? I think I did. Oh, That's you know what? I didn't even notice that because I think it, it was sound like, like Rose. Oh, <laughs> another, another, show. another show I've seen. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a lot. Excellent. Um, all right. I got two more for you. What's your favorite ice cream? My favorite ice cream. Okay. This is going to, going to sound really precious if I tell you my favorite ice cream. It's just us. You can, you can share. It's just me here. <laughs> there was a flavor that, that I've never been able to have again because this ice cream shop closed. It was in Berkeley, California. It was a particular kind of pistachio with little sour cherries, you know, embedded throughout. Ooh. And it was a flavor I would think about. I would go there specifically to get that. And then one day that shop just closed and I will never have it again. Oh, my gosh. That's actually the saddest thing I've ever heard. If you're listening and you have access <laughs> to a pistachio <laughs> sour cherry ice cream, Beth and I are now equally on the lookout. We're going to need to hear from you. Let's crowdsource this, folks. Let us know where we can find it. Um, all right, last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? When I'm surrounded by my closest friends and we are out and having a really fun time together, maybe dancing, that is, or doing karaoke together, then you could take that picture. Oh, that sounds great. I will take that snapshot. 
Well, Beth Wynn, thank you so much for making time today. In your memoir, you ask this question. You say, quote, what do we owe our mother and how much? You're asking it specifically about your own story. But I've really been musing on that today. You know, what what is owed to a parent and how much? And and what is enough and what is okay? Mm. Um, I'm grateful that you stopped by. Oh, thank you so much. Folks, Beth Wynn's new memoir is called Owner of a Lonely Heart. You can find it wherever books are sold. And to everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light. Wherever the day takes you, be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.